Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am intending to cover in this audio 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. Paul, in this section of Scripture, is dealing with abuses of the Lord's Supper. Our context is this. In the first 16 verses of 1 Corinthians 11, he dealt with another problem of church practice, which was the woman's head covering. Now, that was a very difficult section. I think I solved the problem. You can listen to that if you want to hear some interesting ideas about that difficult problem. But this section is relatively easy. It's dealing with another problem of church practice, which is abuses of the Lord's Supper. We start in verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11. Now in giving the following instructions, I, Paul, do not praise you since you come together for the better but for the worse. Now this contrasts what he said at the first of the chapter in verse 2 when he says, Now I praise you because you always remember me and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Well, one of those traditions that he delivered to them was not the, that they were keeping was not the Lord's Supper, as he's getting ready to show. In fact, it's very difficult to think exactly what were the Corinthians doing that Paul told them to do. I don't know. He says, I don't praise you since you come together. That means to eat the Lord's Supper. You come together not for the better, but for the worse. And this shows that coming together to eat the Lord's Supper is, is for the better. It's a good thing. It does a lot of good things for one's church. In my opinion, every Christian church should meet together every week and eat a meal together, and you will see immediate spiritual gains. But like every good thing, good things are leveraged so that when you do a good thing badly, bad things happen. Worse things happen than would have happened if you hadn't done it at all. And this is what's happening with Corinthians. As John Gill puts it, they came together, quote, to indulge luxury and intemperance, to encourage heresies, schisms, and divisions, and so grow more carnal, scandalous, and useless. <laughs> so when Paul says you come together for the worst, what he means is you're coming together for condemnation and judgment, as he says later on at verse 34 of this chapter. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you, come, when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. Okay, we go to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, again, that's to eat the Lord's Supper, when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Now, notice when you come together as a church, how often do they come together? Every Sunday. How often do they eat the Lord's Supper? Every Sunday. Every week. Not once a quarter, as the good Presbyterians do. Every week. I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Now, Paul had already dealt with divisions in chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Now I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers, by a member of Chloe's household, that there is rivalry among you. What I am saying is this, each of you guys, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas, or I'm with Christ. Is Christ divided? Was it Paul who was crucified you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? Now, the division that Paul is talking about here, I think, is not so directly related to the division that is caused by following factional leaders in the church. I think the division is between the rich and the poor, as we'll see as we go on. I'll, sh I'll show that to you as we move on here. He says, in part, I believe that they're divisions, which means there were some Corinthians there that were holding on to unity, peace, and love. Remember, Paul continues to call these Corinthians brothers and friends and saints, even as he blasts them for their deviations from the right way. Now, when he says, I hear that when you come together, there are divisions, the hearing probably 
was the oral report from the house of Chloe that was mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.11. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there is rivalry among you. He also had a letter from the Corinthians, which is now lost. He's responding to that letter and also to the oral report from the members of Chloe's household. We go to verse 19, 1 Corinthians 11. There must indeed be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Now that word factions is unfortunately translated as heresy in the King James. Now, the King James has a lot of misleading translations, and this is one of them. This is not talking about doctrinal heresy. There is never anywhere in the New Testament a word for heresy referring to doctrinal deviations, heterodox doctrinal beliefs. This is talking about divisions that don't have to do with doctrine. In this case, I believe it's, he's probably referring to factions that come from following different leaders like Apollos, Paul, and Cephas. Always talking about factions, the rich and the poor. And of course, there's always the Jews and the Greeks. That was a big one back then. That, those kind of factions, which have nothing to do with doctrine. But why does he say that there must be these factions among you? Because when everybody divides up and says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, those who are appealing to the unity of the body of Christ then become clear, and everybody will look at them and say, well, what party are you? We believe in the unity of Jesus Christ, and we don't believe in factions. So that's how the bad stuff then highlights, the bad people highlight the good people in the church. Let's put it that way. So, as the NIV Study Bible puts it, as deplorable as they are, factions at least serve one good purpose. They show who is faithful to God and who is not. We go to verse 20, 1 Corinthians 11. Therefore, when you come together, Paul continues, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, you notice Paul is saying that normally what you're supposed to be doing is come together. Why? In order to eat the Lord's Supper, which shows what was the purpose of the church meeting. Why did they come together? Talk about football and basketball and politics. No, they came together to eat in order to eat the Lord's Supper, which shows that the Lord's Supper was the focal point of the New Testament church meeting. Why is it called the Lord's Supper? Because he instituted it, as John Gill says. Now he says, when you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. That's because they were screwing things up. That's why they did really come. To, they said they were coming to eat the Lord's Supper, but they weren't really eating the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is not full of drunkenness and division. And by the way, the word supper, dapnon, the Greek word is dapnon. Supper means a full meal, folks, not a sip and a chip. A full meal, not just a little piece of bread, a little shot glass of wine. No, sir. It's a full meal. Potato, the Jewish equivalent of lamb and roast beef, potatoes, macaroni and cheese, peas, string beans, black-eyed peas, etc. 1 Corinthians 11:21. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper ahead of others. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Now probably what's happening here is people, the rich people get there ahead of the poor people. The poor people might have to work longer because of their job situation. And the rich people get tired of waiting. They get hungry. And so, they, and there's probably a potluck type of deal. So they start eating ahead of everybody else. And so they're not eating together as a, as a church body. The family that eats together stays together. I mean, even in the secular world, people always lament, oh, our families aren't eating together. Kids are out there playing sports and watching TV and blah, 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 and we don't eat together as a family. It's a big deal to eat together as a family, and the Corinthian church wasn't doing it. So one person is hungry. That would be the poor person who didn't get there on time to eat. Gets there, the food's all gone. And another gets drunk. That means people got tired of waiting for the poor people, and they start imbibing the wine that was there at the feast 
And so they get drunk. Get drunk at the Lord's Supper. How disgusting. You shouldn't get drunk anywhere, much less at the Lord's Supper. Which, by the way, goes to show that the wine they used was alcoholic. It was not grape juice. Grape juice was not invented until the 1920s by a guy named Robert Welch. You might have heard of Welch Welch's grape juice. The money he made off of that, he did that so that alcoholics and people who didn't want to drink alcohol could drink grape juice in the community. That's why he developed it. He was a devout Christian, and he devoted... He he donated a lot of his money to my seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. And in fact, the administration building was called the Welch Building or something to that effect. It was named after him. I thought that was kind of an interesting little historical tidbit. But back then, by golly, they were drinking real wine. But they were getting drunk. They were drinking too much of it. Now, again, this is a supper. Each one eats his own supper. What is a supper? Is a supper just a little shot glass of wine, a little crumbly bit of saltine crackers? No. Or a little tiny... Tiny wafer that tastes like nothing, as is, as is given a lot of times in Episcopal or Catholic churches. No, it's a supper. The Lord's Supper was a full meal. Here's some scriptures to show that. Second Peter 2.13, referring to the heretics and evil people in the church meeting, Peter says, They consider it a pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, delighting in their deceptions as they feast with you. At feast. That means you eat a lot at a feast. You cannot feast on a shot glass of wine and a soda cracker. Jude 1.12, these are the ones who are like dangerous reefs at your love feasts. What's a feast? Is it drinking about three milli, about two milliliters of wine and about three grams of bread? That's a feast? No. Agape, love feast. A love feast. It's a feast. It's a supper. It's a full meal. Not only that, the Greek word for supper is dapenon. And Dapenon, if you look it up in the lexicon, means a full meal. NIV Study Bible puts it this way. Perhaps the meal was something like a present-day potluck dinner. In good Greek style, they brought food for all to share. I kind of think that's probably what they did, too. And even in English, you don't have to go to the Greek. Lord's Supper? What part of supper do English-speaking American Christians not understand? Supper. The idea that the rich probably bought more food and ate it first and the poor brought less and then the rich probably went ahead and ate all their food first, leaving the poor to be hungry, that comes from the NIV study Bible, John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown. I think those are reasonable speculations. 1 Corinthians 11.22 Don't you have houses to eat and drink in, Paul continues, or do you look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you for this. Of course not. Now, verse, he might be referring to the fact that just 20 verses earlier, he said, I praise you because you always remember me and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. Well, he wasn't speaking literally about always because didn't, they didn't remember him about the Lord's Supper. So he says, yeah, I'm praising you in general, but I'm not going to praise you about this. Now, when he says, don't you have houses to eat and drink in, it means can't you eat some food before you get there? You're so hungry you can't wait for the poor people to get there. Go ahead and get something to take the edge off. Do it privately. Feast all you want at home but don't do it where the poor can see you and you shame them and embarrass them because they didn't bring anything to the meal. 1 Corinthians 11:23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. Now Paul here is going to give the description of the Lord's Supper in all of its holiness and fullness because he's trying to contrast the way it's supposed to be with the way the Corinthians were doing it. Now, of course, we always pick these next few verses out of the chapter and use this when we do the Lord's Supper in our churches today. But again, this is in context what he's doing here. He's not he's not trying to teach them how to do the Lord's Supper. They already know how to do it. He's trying to contrast how it was supposed to be done with the pathetic way that they were doing it. 
And he says, I received from the Lord. There's a split of opinion on how he received it. The NIV study Bible suggests it could be indirectly from other people who were there at the Lord's Supper or who had had it received from people who were there. In other words, from word of mouth. NIV study Bible suggests this. Alf, Albert Barnes denies it. Or it could be that Paul received it directly. Albert Barnes and Ellicott affirm that that's how Paul got it, i.e. through special revelation. Jameson Foster Brown says that also. The NIV Study Bible admits that it's not necessarily directly. They kind of waffle on the issue. But however you got it, it doesn't really matter. He's telling the Corinthians this is the way it's supposed to be. When he says, I receive from the Lord, he says, hey, he's trying to say, hey, this is how it's supposed to be because I got instructions from Jesus, the Lord that you're supposed to be worshiping. First Corinthians 11:24, Paul says, I'm in the middle of a sentence, back in 23, he says, On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, verse 24, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, giving thanks is the same thing as blessing. This, I imagine, is where we get the practice today of giving thanks before our food, because Jesus gave thanks at the Lord's Supper, the first the last Passover, the first Lord's Supper, he gave thanks. In fact, that's where the Catholic Church gets the word Eucharist from, because Eucharist means, I think in Latin, means to give thanks. And Jesus broke it, and as John Gill says, that breaking was a symbol of Jesus' body being wounded, bruised, and broken. I think that's probably pretty good symbology there. Notice he said, this is my body. What was he referring to when he said this? He was referring to bread. He was not referring to his flesh and bones. He was speaking metaphorically. He was referring to bread so that when Jesus says, eat my body, we can reasonably assume that he was saying, eat the bread, which represents my body metaphorically. It doesn't mean that the bread that he actually had there was his body, as people say, Catholics say with transubstantiation, because he was referring to bread, not body, because his body was there separate from the bread. And he was referring to the bread. So how can you eat bread and say you're literally eating the body of Jesus? I, I, it just amazes me the philosophical and theological gyrations Catholics will go through to try to prove that the body and blood in the Mass is Jesus. Jesus' is body and blood literally. With the accidents changed and the essence unchanged. Nonsense! This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now that word remembrance is my friend Steve Ackerson has pointed out many times in many house church conferences, the Greek word can point to the future as well as the past, because what it means is to bring to mind. Well, you could bring to mind something from the past, that's memory, or you can bring to mind something that is going to happen in the future, that's a reminder. For example, I tie the string around my finger to bring to mind that I've got to do something in the future. Well, the English word remembrance only points to the past. The Greek word does not do that. The Greek word can point is ambiguous, really. It can point either to the past or to the future. Well, I'm not here to deny that there's reference to the past by Jesus' body on the cross, and I've got no problem with that, but the future aspect of this is completely lost to modern-day Christians. Let's look at some verses that show that Jesus was referring to the future. In, in the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11:26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the future. You are doing something to remind Jesus, if you will, to come back in the future. Matthew twenty-six twenty-nine. 
But I tell you from this moment, I will, W-I-L, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in a new way in my Father's kingdom with you. A new way in the future I will not drink. And I will drink it then. I'm going to talk about what he might have meant in that verse a little bit later. But you see the future aspect of the word. The future, we're going to drink, the disciples were going to drink with Jesus in the future after the Last Supper. The first Lord's Supper and the last Passover. Now when Jesus gave thanks, that was the Jewish, usual Jewish practice of giving thanks before a meal. I think it's a good custom. We go to 1 Corinthians 11.25. In the same way, after supper, I notice that word supper. It's not a sip and a chip. It's a full meal. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant established in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Well, let's start out by saying he was referring to a cup. He was not referring to his blood. The cup was a symbol of his blood. It could not be literally his blood. They were not drinking his blood. They were drinking something that symbolized his blood at the Lord's Supper. And so why Catholics say that you're actually drinking the blood of Christ? I don't know why. Same thing with Lutherans and their consubstantiation view. Nonsense. All right, so that cup represents the new covenant established by Jesus' blood. Well, what's the new covenant? Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 tells us this in the Old Testament. Jeremiah writes this, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke even though I had married them. That's the old covenant. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will each one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all know me from the least to the greatest of them. That's us, folks. That's the new covenant. Prophesied by Jeremiah. And again, that prophecy was quoted in Hebrews 8.8 by the author there. But finding fault with his people, he, God, says, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So that's what the new covenant is. It's the church. Now notice that the author of the Hebrews in talking about the New Covenant, and if you read the book of Hebrews, obviously the Old Covenant is the Sinaitic Mosaic Law, the New Covenant is the, is the church. That's obvious, non-controversial, but look at this. In Hebrews 8.8, 8, the author quotes Jeremiah as fulfilling, as being fulfilled in the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Well, no, actually it's with the church. Oh, that means the house of Israel and the house of Judah is a symbol of the church. That's the old Israel which is then replaced, I love to use that pejorative word, replaced by the church. Ooh, replacement theology. That is actually a pejorative word. I don't really believe in replacement. I believe in fulfilled. It has a much nicer sound about it. I don't know how dispensationalists and other people who who take this same literalist hermeneutic, hermeneutical approach to the Scriptures, how they get around that. Because if you say in the New Covenant is literally established with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, then the New Covenant is the same as the Old Covenant, and you make a mockery out of the book of Hebrews. Now you notice in 1 Corinthians 11.5, Paul says, as often as you drink it. The Lord's Supper was taken every week. That's weekly. That's a lot. That's why he says often, as often as you drink it. 1 Corinthians 11.26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now again, that word often, as the NIV Study Bible says, shows that the supper was to be eaten periodically. There is no explicit command as to how often that's true, but if you follow New Testament church patterns, which is what I would love to do, how often did the early church 
eat the Lord's Supper once a week, every Sunday. Here's the scriptures to prove it. There's three of them. First one, Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, that Sunday, we came together. Why? To break bread. In order to break bread. They came together to break bread. Now, if breaking bread, most people think, means to eat the Lord's Supper. And I'm, I'm, I'm 95% sure that's what Paul meant. I don't think he just meant coming in to have an ordinary meal. First Corinthians 11.33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, in order to eat, and that was right in the context, as we just finished talking about, that's in our passage today, that was in the context of the Lord's Supper, when you come together to eat. How often did they come together to eat? Well, whenever they came together for the Lord's Supper, for the Lord's Day, which was once a week. On Sunday, 1 Corinthians 11.20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. In other words, when you do come together, and do it properly, it is the Lord's Supper you eat. Now, if you don't take the pattern as binding on yourself, then that means you could take the Lord's Supper once every 10 years and be perfectly okay because you don't violate an explicit command of Scripture, but you do violate the pattern, and Paul expects his traditions, his patterns to be followed. Now, Jesus said that you drink the cup and eat the bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When is When does the Lord come? Well, let's read the similar passage in Matthew 26:29 but I tell you from this moment I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in a new way in my father's kingdom with you now everybody wants to take this until I come meaning the end of the world and some then equate that by conjecture with the the marriage supper of the lamb mentioned in Revelation 19 but all of that is conjecture it's not spelled out anywhere you proclaim the lord's death until he comes when is that when is that coming? Well, you know, there's another coming. He came to judge Jerusalem in AD 70. He also came at Pentecost with the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's the coming he's talking about. Because whenever it is that he comes, he says in Matthew 26:29, that day when I drink it in a new way in my Father's kingdom with you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in a new way. How is Jesus going to drink in a new way? Well, you could say he's going to drink it because the new covenant's here, the old the old. We're we're at the last Passover meal, and we're gonna I'm gonna drink with you in a in the new covenant meal. But the new covenant started, well, I would say at the the crucifixion and the res- at the resurrection. But let's say it's at Pentecost. You could say, okay, he's gonna drink it with him at Pentecost, but he doesn't drink it with him physically at Pentecost. So that's why many people say this Jesus is referring to the end of the world. Okay, well, if it's the end of the world, let me ask you this. How is Jesus going to sit down and eat with his apostles? Jesus is physically now in his human form, even in heaven. How is he going to sit down and drink with billions of Christians? How is he going to do that? Picture that in your mind, if you will. That's some close, intimate fellowship. Billions of Christians? No, I think that when he says he's going to drink in a new way, he's talking about spiritually. Now, this, when I hear creative accounting, I grab my wallet and I call the authorities, and this is creative theology. I have not read this anywhere, actually. This is all me, so you can take it with a grain of salt, but think about Moses and the elders. Did they eat with God up on Mount Sinai? Yes, they did. Well, how did God eat with Moses and the elders on Mount Sinai? How did he do that? God is not physical. So, obviously, eating is a spiritual is a metaphor in that situation of a spiritual God being with physical human beings and being in their presence. And I believe that's what Jesus meant. He says, when I drink it in a new way, that means he is spiritually going to be present with the disciples in the new covenant. Not at the end of the world, eating physically with the disciples, but in the new covenant, the kingdom of God, the church right now. 
He's going to be with us. And that's why I believe in Calvin's spiritual real presence view of the communion, because I believe he is drinking it with us in a new way. Whenever we have the communion, he's with us spiritually. You can take that, if you will. I'm convinced it's right, but again, I haven't found a lot of support with that yet. I'll work on it. 1 Corinthians 11:27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. How were they drinking the cup and eating the bread in an unworthy way? Well, here's some options on that. Creating factions, getting drunk, being irreverent and self-centered. And I think that's clearly what it is. NIV Study Bible says that. Adam Clark comes up or mentions a kind of a screwy idea. They were thinking of their deliverance from Egypt at the Passover instead of thinking about the Lord's death on the cross. Well, that's, I don't believe that. They were drinking and eating, eating in an unworthy way because they were getting drunk, eating before the poor people got there, causing factions, causing dissensions, causing opprobrium to be cast upon the poor brother, and they were just acting like idiots. 1 Corinthians 11:28. so a man should examine himself in this way. He should eat the bread and drink from the cup. Now, this is one of my favorite verses. I believe it is totally misapplied in the modern church. We sit there, and we be quiet, and we bow our heads, and we say, God, find me a sin so I can confess it. That is not, in my humble opinion, what Paul meant here. What he's talking about is examining yourself to see whether you're causing division in the body of Christ by doing the things that the Corinthians are doing, egregious sins. You know, if you want to confess sins, you can do that at home. You can do that. You should do that at home, actually, before you get to the church. The the purpose of the Lord's Supper is not to be a, a Roman Catholic confessional booth. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to feast. It's an agape love feast. And you don't sit around acting mournful and, oh, I'm such a wicked sinner at a feast. You just don't. This verse has been used to justify morbid self-searching and self-condemnation at communion. Look at the very next verse here. It shows that Paul was referring to the particularly egregious sins of the Corinthians. He wasn't saying we should dig up every little sin right before communion. And he didn't say the examination should happen right before the Lord's Supper. A love feast is a happy occasion, not a morbid one. Well, what's the next verse that tends to prove that Paul is talking about examining yourself to see if you're splitting the body of Christ up? 1 Corinthians 11:29. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's what he's talking about. Not recognizing the body, and I'm assuming the body there means the body of Christ, the church, which was being split up by the factions. Now, it could be the Lord's physical body. You eat and drink without recognizing the Lord's physical body. In other words, the communicant doesn't realize that the bread symbolizes Christ's crucified body, nor does he recognize that the blood represents Jesus's physical blood. And if you do that, you eat and drink judgment. I don't think so. I think they knew exactly what that bread and blood was supposed to symbolize. They weren't stupid. What they were doing was is they were splitting up the body of Christ between the rich and the poor. All right, so assuming that's true, what's the result? What's the punishment? The person who does that doesn't recognize the body when he eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, the King James has a very unfortunate translation, damnation. Eats and drinks damnation on himself. What a terrible translation because that makes it sound like you're going to hell if you sin in this area of the Lord's Supper, which means that Jesus' blood doesn't really save you, does it? And you can lose your salvation. Other unfortunate things. Well, even the Arminian Adam Clark denies that it means eternal damnation. John Gill denies that it means eternal damnation. Jameson Fawcett and Brown denies that it means eternal damnation. And the NIV Study Bible denies that it means eternal damnation. And all four of those authorities 
say that it refers to temporal chastisements, and I agree with them. How do we know? Well, because if we look at the next verses, the context, next verse, 1 Corinthians 11.30 says, This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. Why? Because you don't discern the body when you eat. Sick and ill, that's not eternal damnation, that's a temporal punishment. And then two verses later in 1 Corinthians 11.32, But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. See, judged, eat and drink judgment on ourselves. Not damnation, but judgment. But the judgment is a discipline. And of course, there's a difference between being disciplined and being destroyed, condemned eternally. Verse 32 says, When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we may not be condemned with the world. See the distinction? The Lord's people are disciplined. The world's people are condemned and destroyed. That terrible KGV translation, damnation, this is what Jameson Fawcett Brown says about it, quote, a mistranslation which has put a stumbling block in the way of many in respect to communicating. As in so many other times, we don't speak King James English anymore. I do not know why Christians insist on using the Bible because it perpetuates confusion. Shamefacedness, do you know what that means? Do you like a version that has the word piss in it? How about this? Heresies, when Paul was actually talking about divisions. I could go on and on about that. We go to verse 30. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. It's because they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and eating before everybody got there and leaving people out, causing divisions. That's why they got sick and fell asleep, which, of course, is the idiom back then for dying. Now, this shows, first of all, that even though you're not going to lose your salvation for sinning, temporal punishments can be quite severe. So these people say, well, I'm saved. Once I'm saved, always saved. I can do whatever I want to. There's not going to be any consequences. Oh, yes, there will be. God can really discipline his children really, really badly. Uh, well, I shouldn't say badly. It's bad from your point of view if you're receiving the punishment. He can do that. He won't send you to hell. But he'll, it's just like a father. He can discipline his son terribly, take him, disinherited him, turn him over to the cops, get him put in jail, won't let him come in the house. But he's still his son. Well, why would we want to live like that? We, we wouldn't want to. And Paul says, look, guys, you can look around you and see that a lot of people of you are sick. Have you wondered why? It's because you're abusing the Holy Lord's Supper. Now, there's a question here, as Adam Clark brings out, does this mean when many got sick and ill that God was directly causing them to be sick? Or was it because they got sick because they were drinking too much and eating too much at the Lord's Supper? A natural type of punishment. I don't think it's natural. I think God was supernaturally letting them reap what they sow. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31. If we were properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. In other words, if we would look at the way that we're not discerning the body and ripping the body up into factions and, and drinking to excess, we wouldn't be judged by being sick and dying. And again, that makes it sound to me like God's doing the judging, not us, not the Corinthians bringing the judgment on themselves, but God doing the judgment. First Corinthians, First Corinthians 11.32. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. So there you go. The judgment that comes upon you, you are disciplined by the Lord so that we may not be condemned with the world. See, there's the, there's the contrast. You're disciplined by the Lord, the world's condemned. Let's look at some verses about discipline. Second Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. There's the distinction. Condemnation brings death. Condemnation, a repentance that leads to a, a repentance, and let's put it this way, an ungodly grief, grief that is not grief because you've offended God, but grief because you're sub suffering the circumstances that's going to get you condemnation, too. You're suffering the punishment, the consequences of your action. That's going to get you death. 
The godly belief is going to give you repentance and life. And, of course, the famous passage on discipline is in Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 11. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Why is that? Because father doesn't care about discipline his bastard son. I'll let him do what he wants to. He's not really my son. But he's my son, carrying on my name. I'm going to discipline, make sure he flies right. Verse 9, Hebrews 12, Furthermore, we had natural fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? See, the end result of discipline is life, not death. For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, short time during their childhood. But he, God, does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. So discipline leads to benefits, and discipline leads to holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Say amen to that. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, you know, I've been disciplined. Everybody's been disciplined. It's horrible. But I was such a rotten, miserable sinner. I was doing so many bad things. I remember, I remember, for example, one time a friend of mine and I put a smoke bomb in a burger restaurant when I was 18 years old. Was I disciplined for that? When the cops are chasing you and you see your life flash before your eyes and your future and your career and your college education and everything oh my gosh oh yeah it was painful but guess what i haven't put any smoke bombs in a burger restaurant i haven't put any smoke bombs in any restaurant since i was 18 years old for a long long time because i learned i became holy in the area of putting smoke bombs in restaurants i was trained by the cops i remember one time listening to a, a cassette tape years ago by i think it was a missionary so, so i don't I forgot the brother's name but he said there's three reasons that evil happens to you. One is the devil's trying to destroy you. Two is God is trying to test you to build you up. You didn't do anything wrong, but he's testing you. And the third reason is because you did something wrong, and God's chastising you or disciplining you because of your sin. And it's your job to figure out what it is when something bad happens. And, of course, bad things happen all the time. But you got to realize that God's in control. He's not going to discipline you to the point of death. You're not going to be condemned along with the world. It's not going to happen. You might be severely chastised. You might end up with nothing, with your hair singed and your clothes burn off of your back, but you're not going to die. Why does Paul mention this about judge? When we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so we won't be condemned because he just finished telling them they're going to be judged because their people sick, they're dying because of their horrible sin by the Lord's Supper. He wants to encourage them and say, okay, yeah, you're getting judged, but hey, when you're disciplined by the world, when you're judged, you're not, you're not being condemned like the world is. You're not going to hell. You're being disciplined, and he doesn't mention it here, but of course discipline brings to, as in Hebrews, it brings good things to one's life, holiness, benefits, life. We move now to verse 33. Therefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. He's talking about eating the Lord's Supper. Wait for one another, rich guys, wait for the poor guys to get there. We all eat together as one happy church family. Paul is referring back to what he said in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 11, For at the meal each one eats his own supper ahead of others. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. So don't do that. Wait for, wait for everybody. And the therefore is therefore because he's saying, If you don't want to experience the unfortunate judgments that I just mentioned, namely getting sick and dying, well then maybe you better eat together and not in factions. And notice, Paul once again calls the Corinthians his brothers. Therefore, my brothers, he knows how to not condemn when he condemns 
he knows how not to condemn the person when he condemns the sin. 1 Corinthians 11.34, If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come unto judgment. And I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. The other matters probably means other matters concerning the Lord's Supper, probably, or maybe it's other matters that Paul didn't mention. It's, these were the matters that were probably mentioned in the lost letter that, to which Paul was responding that I've mentioned several times before. Now, when Paul says, if anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, he does not mean that that person should eat at home to the exclusion of eating the Lord's Supper at the meeting. Jameson Fawcett Brown says it's just what Paul means is just, quote, let him take off the edge of his hunger at home so he doesn't have to be tempted when he gets to church to eat in front, eat ahead of the other brothers. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with 1 Corinthians chapter 16, excuse me, chapter 11. We will start with 1 Corinthians 12 in our next audio, and we will start discussing spiritual gifts, another area of the church which was abused. And let me say right now, you know, the Lord's Supper was abused, but was it abolished? Of course not. Spiritual gifts are being abused, but are they abolished? Well, you have to ask a uh, cessation and see what he says about that. I don't think they ought to be abolished. See you next time. Hope you enjoyed this audio.